everybody, and welcome back to Theology and Dialogue. This is Jacob. I am a student at Villanova University in Theology and Religious Studies, and I am sitting here with my new friend, Eric Kindler. Hi, Jake. How you doing, Jacob? Either way. Either yeah, way I have fine. you as Jacob in my phone. <laughs> so, But I call you Jacob. That's how I introduce myself nowadays. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. I'm yeah. doing fine, Jacob. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, so Eric here is more or less taking over the podcast. I'm transitioning out. I'm moving on to some other stuff. And Eric is uh, more than capable and seems seems happy seems happy about it. Don't get this twisted, listeners. This is a coup. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is a forcible remove. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I run a sports podcast. Um, and, and when I came here, this is my first year here at Villanova. I'm a master's student and I met Jake. I live beneath him in, in our apartment on oh, Montgomery yeah. Avenue. And, uh, Jake told me about the podcast and knows about the one that we do. And he, you know, has, has things that he wants to do as, as all students move on and do new things right and mm-hmm. so jake the godfather wants to hand <laughs> off the reins and i would happily oblige so here i am man. yeah so tell us a little bit about what you got in store for us today absolutely well this has i think for the catholic community been a uh, tough end of the summer right yeah uh, sure yeah with the sexual abuse scandal that has kind of rocked the church in a new and unprecedented way. I think in 2002, we saw in Boston, and our our first guest will allude to that in the conversation, you had that shock value of, oh my goodness, this this happened. And this right, didn't just right, happen right. in one place or with one person. It was, it was big. And I think at that time, we had in the sexual abuse crisis, the understanding that things happened and that was the the great you know explosion but it was in our minds okay well justice will be served in my ignorant view of it people are going to um hopefully be reconciled in some manner hopefully the hierarchy will act accordingly to make sure mm-hmm. and had made sure right. that people were taken care of and you know from these violations yeah. and now um I think in a new way we have in the sexual abuse crisis, not just the continuation of that incredible violation of a human being, but you have that systemic cover-up from the hierarchy. And today we have a very interesting episode, Jake, I'm excited about, because it's very meaningful to me. And you know, I know you're not Catholic, but we are both Christians and we're part of a a religious organization, right? That mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know prides sure. itself on providing a great moral framework for action. And what happens when the worst happens? That's yeah. what we're talking about today. Yeah. So we have Dr. Massimo Fagioli, who has been very vocal in uh, both on social media, but then also in mass media in the exact wake of this um, this past month, uh, coming to join us, as well as uh, young adult novelist Patricia McCormick to speak with us about her um, her very candid and, and raw experience that she had as an abuse survivor and how that has, has shaped her life both as a person but also as a novelist. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So we're hitting you hard. Yeah, yeah, we're hitting the ground running. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, 
I know that uh, I know that this is uh, this is going to be appreciated by a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners. So absolutely, um, I won't waste any more time. No, uh, and, and just to uh, just to be on. well, no, and just to begin, uh, Dr. Massimo Fagioli is professor professor of theology at Villanova University. He specializes in modern church history, particularly in the wake of Vatican II. He has, like I said, provided some timely dialogue surrounding the sexual abuse scandal in this past month, and his most recent article, Flirting with Schism, the right-wing effort to delegitimize Pope Francis, can be found in this uh, most recent month's issue of Commonweal, which we will provide. Um, so we will, uh, we will get to Massimo's interview here in a moment. We had an opportunity to speak with him la- uh, this week in, in relation to the sexual abuse crisis, but also... Not just what was going on, but he has an interesting take on what it means in what's going on with Pope Francis mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how he believes that the backlash that is occurring is uh, being capitalized upon by a certain group of individuals and, and you know and people mm-hmm. within the church that want to see him ousted. So mm-hmm. Massimo provides some great dialogue concerning this, and let's go right in into it. Massimo Fagioli, thank you very much for joining Theology and Dialogue. Let's just jump right into this. Uh, many are calling this the where we're at right now in the church the greatest crisis in the church since the Protestant Reformation. In your writings, you're, you're calling it an unprecedented moment in modern church history. Where are we at right now with the church in relation to a month ago in which Pennsylvania released its PA grand jury report? In this last month, a few things have happened. Uh, for sure, the most important fact was the uh, the publication of the report of the grand jury in Pennsylvania on six dioceses in the state, uh, which is one of the largest uh, inquiries on what happened in terms of the sex abuses uh, uh, committed by the clergy in more than 60 years. And this is a shocking document because... It reveals the uh, not just how many cases, but what is disturbing is the pattern of cover-up. That is uh, not new, but this document is really, really uh, effective in showing how systematic the cover-up was. And so this has been a shocking, a shocking moment. And I believe that if we take the grand jury report in the context of what happened in the Catholic Church in these last few months or weeks, I believe that this is the beginning of a second phase of uh, Chapter 2 of the sex abuse crisis, which is different from Chapter 1, which was the explosion of the whole crisis um, in the ground zero in the West, which was Boston. So I think that where we are now, it's a different picture because we know now that it's not a a local problem of some local churches. It's no longer, we no longer believe that it's an American problem. So we have seen in in these last few years, uh, Australia, Chile, Ireland, Germany just today, an interesting report has been leaked about a few thousand cases between the the 1940s and 2000. So it's a second phase, not just because we have more cases in more countries, but because we are in a different moment in the life of the church. In 2002, it was still a church that was firmly 
under the institutional grip of a generation of bishops and of popes, John Paul II, who dies in 2005, and his most important uh, assistant, let's say, in the Vatican, Joseph Ratzinger, is elected pope. So back then, the sex abuse crisis was not as explosive at the, as it has become uh, today, because right now is a much more fragmented church, globally, uh, and especially in the United States. This is the totally new uh, aspect, because in 2002, the, the church in the United States was less divided, and what is disturbing of these last few weeks and months is the attempt of some to use the sex abuse crisis as a tool to fight the culture war on homosexuality, on LGBT. This is really new, and it has to be read in the wider context of the difficult relationship between the more conservative uh, part of the Catholic Church in the United States and the pontificate of Francis. That's why, uh, at the end of of August, this... uh, letter published by the former nuncio in the West was so explosive, not just because it demanded the resignation of Pope Francis, but because it revealed that the sensible crisis is now subject to an ideological, cynical use that we didn't see before. Sure. I, did you read my notes already? I, I think I had all those questions going forward. <laughs> no, that, that was so much in that answer. And, and I want to unpack uh, many things that I want. I want to touch upon, you know, the, the way in which these culture wars are being fought. And I think you especially talked about that, the, the S word schism in, in your piece in Commonweal. But take me back to, to the end of Pope John Paul II's reign, right? So we have a pope basically over four decades, right, from the 70s to the early aughts. That um, really, in my in, in many views, tried to kind of cut back on basically the decentralization and the and the and the authority of the church from Vatican II. Um, in two thousand two, with Boston, right, and and most famously in the film Spotlight. Again, you're right. We saw the explosiveness, the shock value of it. The, we are in a second chapter where we've seen this before, but the systemic kind of use of this by co- this cover up, it was interesting. It, especially from someone like in, in Harrisburg, where I'm from, to be able to see that. What about those situations um, in terms of in terms of cover up, all of that? How is that translating now to people being held accountable? Right. So we're now seeing cardinals uh, forced to resign. In what ways are you seeing uh, church higher ups being accountable for those situations? And here in the United States, but globally. So. In these last 15, 16 years after 2002, a few important things have happened institutionally in the Catholic Church to deal with that. So there's a long list. And I have to say that it's very hard to have a picture of the institutional response of the Catholic Church from the institutional media of the Catholic Church. They are very ineffective in that. And this is really part of the crisis. So after 2000. And two, there are a few steps. One is a change in the Code of Canon Law that says that the statute of limitation of sexual crimes is is uh, elevated towards uh, 20 years, but it can be unlimited in 
if there's a decision made in that case. So that is a big change. Another change is that the Vatican decided that the accusers against clergy and bishops of abuses or cover-up, they have one tribunal only, which is the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Holy Office. So this is a very centralized response. You have in the U.S. the Dallas Charter. With Pope Francis, there are some other changes, like uh, the creation of the, of, of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, which really doesn't deal with accountability, but they do a, an enormous work of formation, of helping people, uh, adopting good policies, good practices all over the world. This Francis decision to create a special tribunal within the CDF congregation to uh, try bishops who have been accused. And the most important thing in terms of accountability is that with Francis we finally see that the Vatican uh, accepts, but that is a, is a euphemism for demands, resignation of uh, bishops. And so this is something really new. And so with Francis now we have a list of bishops that have resigned because the Vatican basically let them know that they expected the resignation in the U.S., in other countries. And so this is new. One big, a very important comparison with, with 2002 is that the, the Vatican is no longer a safe haven for bishops who are accused or, or are convicted. Actually, the Vatican welcomes uh, when second jurisdictions, attorney generals, they investigate. There's no attempt to shield the institution from... Uh, so this is new. The problem is this, is that in this moment of anger and of rage, especially in some countries like the U.S., there is the expectation that the Vatican can act uh, swiftly and act against bishops in a, in a matter of days or weeks, which is something that is a trap because I believe it would make the problem worse in terms of centralizing again the Catholic Church. So here Francis is trying, I believe, to walk a difficult path, which is the need to come up with some action from the center, from the Vatican. And so the news of today is that Francis has called an extraordinary meeting of all presidents of all bishop conferences in the Vatican in February uh, to deal with that special issue of the Second Crisis is the first time in history that we have this kind of meeting, which is not a synod, is not a consistory. So that is interesting ecclesiologically. And so Francis understands that there's need for central action. On the other hand, he doesn't accept the idea that Rome can work as a patch for where the local uh, hierarchy cannot deal with this. So here, so the U.S., I mean, that may sound strange to U.S. Catholics, but the U.S. Catholic Church is one of, or the most advanced in this. In my own church in Italy, the guidelines of the, US, of the Italian Catholic Church 
they recommend uh, priests, uh, priests and bishops to report. But there's no mandatory reporting. And so that shows you how far behind Italy is. So here there is the need to be realistic and pragmatic. And it seems to me that sometimes Catholics, they dream of a papacy that acts like, like Rambo. And this is not just difficult to reconcile with a gospel, evangelical idea of the papacy. It just doesn't work in this church that is too big for one pope to act as a judge on 5,000 bishops. That's that an, an organizational problem. Sure. And in terms of accountability and organizational problem, most notably here in the United States, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick of Washington, D.C. resigned in late July you wrote in your piece in Commonweal that um, the response from Car- uh, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vagano, that is a, uh, and, and his call for Francis to resign, that's not just a reflection of the problems going on with the sexual abuse, but continually this, this growing divide between individuals in the church. Can you speak about Vagano more? I know in your piece you, you said that upon further analysis, a lot of his um, accusations seem to fall apart at the seams. You called it a personal vendetta um, against Pope Francis, and he seems to be representative of a very conservative minority in the church. What's going on with Vagano and this this soap opera? Well, he changed his version a couple of times uh, because journalists, a few days after he published his uh, his testimony, found uh, a lot of inconsistencies uh, and of absences. So this document wanted to be an accusation against Pope Francis, but if you look at the history of what happened with McCarrick, uh, the investigation has to look into what happened during the pontificate of John Paul II and of Pope Benedict. And so this is something that it took just a few days. So uh, that accusation has collapsed. So there's still the question of what happened with with McCarrick, of course. Now, that document is interesting because, especially if you read all of it uh, through the end, you see that it becomes increasingly evident that the real motive of that testimony against Francis is not exactly uh, about McCarrick, but it's the idea that he wants us to convince us is that the McCarrick scandal happened because there is a homosexual mafia in the Catholic Church, in the Vatican, and in the United States, and he names names. I mean, some of them are cardinal, secretary of state, and so on. Some others are American Jesuits. So he says the secondary crisis is a scandal, but the real scandal is, is, is the homosexual culture in the Catholic Church. So this reveals that this crisis is being used to push back against a few things that Pope Francis has said, saying that the Catholic Church should come up with a better language and a better ecclesiology to accept the fact that there are there's a number of Catholics in the Catholic Church that are, are uh, gays, lesbians, and that to be Catholic, being straight, is not a canonical requirement. 
And so this is the heart of the problem, which is an American problem, because I spend every year, a few few weeks in Australia to teach, and they have a similar uh, sex abuse scandal there. And the cultural war uh, around the gay issue is not part of the Australian debate. And they have, so it's a similar culture, similar language, similar history, but that narrative is not part of that. Why is that? So this is, is part of the culture war within U.S. Catholicism that is typical of this Catholic Church of these last 30 years. Mm-hmm. And this is why this, this crisis has become more intractable because, of course, vic- victims and survivors, they feel used and instrumentalized. And this is not going to make this crisis uh, easier to solve, I, I'm afraid. Yeah, and most maliciously, a lot of people, especially in, in Catholic media here in the United States, use the, the statistics from the John Jay report from at, stemming from Boston to say that most sexual abuse occurred in post-pubescent boys aged 14 to 17. So indeed, this isn't a situation apparently of pedophilia, it's that of rampant homosexuality. And it's amazing to see how it's not even like a hushed conspiracy theory. It, this is a full-forced, um, full-pledged push of, to, against this so-called velvet mafia um, that really is homophobic in, in many different ways. And I'm glad you're touching upon that. Take me here to Philadelphia now. We, we don't have to talk about Rome, you know, talk about Rome, but we don't need to travel across to Europe to really get to the bottom of this. Our own archbishop here, Charles Chaput, um, here in Philadelphia seems to be the bastion of that, um, in the United States, he just called uh, for a postponement of the, the U Synod. Um, he also has been incredibly vocal against uh, lawmakers concerning the sexual abuse crisis, most notably in 2016. Um, and he also, as a former school minister in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia Schools, I know from firsthand his very strong commitment to the so-called life issues. He wrote in his book, Strangers in a Strange Land, at the beginning that the greatest symbol of uh, the degradation of our society was the passing of same-sex marriage in this country. So what about Charles Chaput? You said, great quote, Philadelphia is not the new Avignon, but... So, so what are we doing here in Philadelphia and, and with this leader? How are we experiencing the church? Well, I take seriously the fact that as a Catholic, um, I have to have a, a certain kind of relationship with with my bishop, whoever he is, uh, whether I agree with him or not. So I, I think he takes very seriously the issue of the sex abuse crisis, and I respect that. What was most shocking, I, I, I should say, is that after the accusation of Vigano came out and the request to Pope Francis to resign, I was sure that all bishops, especially the most important bishops in this country, would uh, would have asked the Vatican to come up with credible answers, but at the same time, they would have said, uh, we are in communion with the, the, uh, the Bishop of Rome, with the Pope that has been uh, legitimately elected. That didn't happen. So that was the shocking part, I would say, not just from one archbishop, but from other archbishops in the U.S., that 
they didn't see really what that that operation was about and i have to say that that week after the publication of the, the testimony uh, it, it was one of the most uncertain weeks for me as as a catholic and as a scholar because what happened was totally unexpected and shocking and uh, really bordering with with schism so here i believe that we should be very aware that uh, there are serious differences in the church on many issues and homosexuality is one of them i'm not one of those who say that that is an easy easy issue to decide in the catholic church it will take at least one generation to figure out what it means for us at the same time i believe that there is the abc of catholicism uh, catholicism 101 that says that we should be mindful and respectful of the bind of the bound of communion in the church between people and their bishops, the bishops and the bishop of, of, of Rome. I think that this crisis was most disturbing for that than for the request to Pope Francis to resign, which nobody believed that Pope Francis would resign. I, I didn't believe that for a minute. That was not the worrying part. The disturbing part was that some bishops said, Monsignor Vigano is right, and Pope Francis was not mentioned in their statements. That is a disturbing sign which uh, really was for me unexpected. It was surprising and uh, it, should, it should tell us something about the situation in this church. And this is a very complex and convoluted one, and it's difficult. I'm I, I'm with you on as a fellow, you know, as a fellow Catholic and individual trying to find my way in this. It's 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 harmful and it's it's sad, and um, especially when you know, like my my grandmother was a secretary for one of the bishops in Harrisburg, and you know, my family and cradle Catholic family comes through here, and I had the opportunity to speak to, um, and I think I spoke to you this off air. Um, you know, there's a second part of this episode, uh, a sexual abuse survivor, Patty McCormick, who's gone on to be a great young adult novelist. Um, but to hear her story and her testimony was incredibly powerful and important for me personally, you know, to be able to hear her story. You know, Patty herself is not practicing in the faith anymore. You know, she's found her spiritual path to be, you know, somewhere else. But I, I could tell the, the de- by the depth that she spoke about the church, how much it meant to her and how damaging her experience of abuse was to her. So I guess lastly, what would you say to someone like Patty or all the really thousands of sexual abuse survivors out there right now who are continuing to pull out their hair and and lose hope really in actual things happening, right? This is the hardest question because I, I don't know what to say to a victim or a survivor. I'm one of those Catholics who was was truly shocked by what happened because in my experience before the Boston uh, uh, revelations I had never heard never had experience of anything like that and you can call me blind or very lucky 
but I never imagined anything like that. So it was a totally new picture for me. So I don't know what to say. I mean, I just want to say that we need to listen to them. So we need to speak very few words and we need to listen. I don't know if uh, the victims and of the, if the survivors, they miss the church in some sense. We certainly miss them. So this is uh, it's uncharted territory because it's one of those cases when you have to, uh, to accept the idea that the ecclesial sacramental experience may not be the best thing for a person. So this is theologically hard to to uh, accept because if you're Catholic, you believe that these sacraments are nourishment, and you have to accept that for those who have gone through certain experiences, that kind of food may be poison. So this is it's it's really pushing hard us towards limits of our theology. That's why this crisis is important not just legally but also theologically because it shows that we need to rethink something. So I don't know if they miss us. We certainly miss them. And we miss them now more than, uh, than ever. And uh, that's, that's it's something that I believe uh, is a very strong argument for an ecclesiology of an invisible church where we are bound in communion, uh, even those with those that don't show up in, in the church for many reasons. So it's a very strong argument to stay in communion in ways that we cannot express, that are our canon laws cannot express, uh, certainly. But this is something that has a lot to say to us uh, as believers. Um, and... Uh, this is uh, very personal, very incomplete uh, version of, of what this crisis um, means for us. Well, Massimo Fagioli, thank you very much for joining us in Theology and Dialogue. Before you get out of here, I noticed that you're very active on Twitter. I was, I was going through, I don't think I had enough time to go through all those tweets. Where can we follow you on social media? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter and I'm, I'm on Facebook. I don't know if I recommend you to follow me. <laughs> that is at your, I'd recommend it. Your own risk. <laughs> but no, it, 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 it started as a way to stay informed, stay in touch, and then it has become something else. Uh, it's now an integral part of what I do. Wonderful. We'll, we will have those tagged on our website as well as your new piece in Commonweal. Massimo Fagioli, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Fajoli for joining us on Theology and Dialogue. We're going to now move over into the personal witness and experience of the sexual abuse crisis here in the church. Patricia McCormick, young adult author, joins us today. In the wake of her op-ed she wrote in the New York Times in mid-August, I felt it would be appropriate to have her on the show and talk about her experiences, not just uh, concerning her experience of abuse, but the way in which her her life in total as well as her career has led her to doing the work that she has done. And so we thank Patty for joining us and let's go ahead into our conversation with Patricia McCormick. Patricia McCormick, thank you so much for joining us for Theology and Dialogue. You have a tremendous 
an interesting career as, as a writer, but, you know, you went into the New York Times with an op-ed concerning the issue of child sexual abuse and in your experiences. Patty, I, I want to ask you, your, your opening statements were, were interesting. You said when, when it came out, you, you were going to be in big trouble, which I had to look at twice about, and I was, I was curious. Why, why start the op-ed out about being in big trouble, and, and what does that say about, you know, your, your approach to this whole issue? Well, I think that that feeling of guilt and culpability and that somehow you did something wrong is something that a lot of victims have, and it's a, almost like a visceral reaction that follows you deep into adulthood. So I wanted to start with an honest uh, offer to readers about what it was like to be in my shoes. So the first thought is, oh, no, I'm going to be in trouble, and then you start to process what it means. Absolutely, and I and I appreciate you jumping right into that because it puts you, it puts me the reader into your shoes. You know, as a as a young preteen and even teenager growing up in Central Pennsylvania, because I can relate with that. Can you describe, you know, your your upbringing and what it was like to, uh, you know, particularly have the Catholic Church be a very important part in, in your family's life? You know, it was a core part of our identity that we were Catholics. And my mother used to even say um, about other people who weren't as observant as we are, she would say, well, they're not, they're not Catholic like we are. Um, so we were not just people who went to church on Sunday. My parents were really involved in the founding of the new parish once it moved to the West Shore. My dad uh, was an accountant, and he did the books for the church and then later for the high school all of his life. Um, he always gave 10% of his salary, even when it was tough, to the church, and we all went to Catholic school. So it was a really thoroughgoing kind of Catholicism. And as a kid, it was something I really loved. I loved being Catholic. I loved the pageantry. I loved the mystery. Um, I especially loved, for whatever reason, the Stations of the Cross. I, lo- I just thought the the way that some of those rituals will will walk you through step by step the important moments in um, the life of the man that we call Jesus Christ or the uh, the stories that grew up around him. I just found that really, uh, it just hit me. It, it just went straight to my heart and soul. And so uh, our family was involved in... Um, also, as a lot of families were, we would have the priests over for dinner. I don't know if your family did that, but, you know, they, those guys were perceived as, as like almost like bachelors. And, and so different members of the parish would have them over, you know, like every couple months or so. And we'd get out the good china and, and make a big, big deal out of it. He was a very honored member in our home. Sure. And, and I think I'm so happy that you mentioned that because, not only were these men bachelors, but they were bachelors with great amounts of perceived power and influence, right? Mm-hmm. Not not just on the books in the parish, but in the homes, the very homes um, of the people that they visited. And uh, you, you painted a great picture, uh, you know, in your living room as a museum of suburban propriety. I cracked up at that. I was like, yep, that's good. That's, that's, uh, that's suburbia for you. Um, talk about the power structure and, and even struggle. Uh, that that you discussed because I've seen and read this in many times for situations um, of abuse in which you know, the the person that is is doing the abuse is 
grooming an individual and, and also making the, the victim feel as if, you know, they're, they're perhaps less than or the victim is, is wanting to be vindicated or validated, um, you know, by the abuser in some way. And it seemed like comments that you had about, you know, him seeing you in, in a certain light. Can you talk about that? Am I seeing that correctly? Sure. No, that's exactly accurate. Um, I was in a home, you know, for girls, didn't necessarily uh, get my share of positive attention. And along comes this, this representative of God into our home. And he singles me out for attention and somehow validates the very thing I needed most, which was to give me a sense that I had opinions and I had a voice and, and I had a mind. And that was both part of the manipulation, sadly, but it is something that um, I it, it was a kind of um, gift isn't quite the right word, but it, it was noticed that I got at a time when I needed it that has followed me to this day. He was the first person to recognize that in me. His his purpose was unholy. But, um, you know, often this is the case when, when you're in an abuse situation. The, uh, the survivor gets something out of it. And I would say that that was, that was my experience. Um, I think the other thing about the power structure is that the whole family uh, is affected by this, even if they're not exactly conscious of it. Um, I know that my sisters were perplexed by this special attention that I got from this man, but didn't know what to do about that. My father walked in one time uh, when it was happening and just averted his eyes and then offered um, Father Bradle a drink. It was too hard for him to see it. It was impossible for him to acknowledge it. Same thing with my mother when I told her later in life. She said, oh, no, not Father Bradle. So there's a denial that the whole family participates in that allows it to happen and that also then keeps the survivors from talking about it later. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I can only imagine that situation, um, but it's it's amazing uh, when you have something like a PA grand jury report, you know, implicating over 300 priests um, with over a thousand victims, um, and these stories seem to almost, re- uh, you know, replicate themselves throughout time, um, you know, and that that situation where the the you know the, the priest is confronted, and you know, I was just reading, you know, for instance, a story about uh, a fellow here in Philadelphia who had been having issues, you know, with abuse, and when approached, you know, the parents were approached, they actually told the kid to go back to the priest because they thought he was lying and that very priest needed to quote unquote counsel him about how you know, how to how to be a better person. It actually, you know, ingrained the cycle of abuse even further or, you know, a young woman I, I just read, you know, was was deemed a liar from her parents and, and things like that. And I just think that image of, you know, perhaps your father uh witnessing it and, and just diverting one's attention away um, because I think it speaks so much towards identity, right? You, you mentioned, you know, that in the article that you had, you know, lost faith in the church, you know, at, at some time, you know, ago uh, when Father Bredo had reached back out to you. How did that shape your identity, um, both as an individual, you know, as a woman, but, but then also, you know, as a, as a spiritual person? 
Unfortunately, it made me really cynical. As soon as I left for college, I left the church. As soon as I didn't have to go, no one was observing me going to church on Sunday, I stopped. And it was a real loss for me uh, because, as I said, I, I got comfort from the uh, the rituals and got a kind of uh, fortitude uh, for the week by going to Mass. Uh, I stayed away from the Catholic Church forever after that. Um, you know, the political choices that the Church made going forward were ones that I, I couldn't agree with, uh, and that sort of solidified my my rupture with the Church. But I will tell you something um, interesting. When I went to the Diocese of Harrisburg and talked in person to a social worker and a priest who was representing the diocese, when I was finished, they you know, they were very eager to have, try to help me restore my faith and have me come back to the church. And I, I said, that's not going to happen. And can, is there anything we can do, they said. And I said, you know, I would like to make a confession. And I realized that I had harbored an enormous amount of anger and hatred toward this priest who abused me and that the the ritual that would help me with that would be to confess it and ask for forgiveness for my uh, anger and my my hatred and have it lifted from me and so uh, they heard he heard my confession right there in an office room in the diocese building and it was very uh, very secular the setting but the ritual was the same as it always is and it worked. I walked out of there uh, relieved from that that anger. And so in the end, um, I felt well served by the individuals that I saw at the diocese, by the ritual of the confession and by the the, the social worker and the priest who heard my story. Wow, that's, uh, that's powerful. And, and, you know, I... I know we've communicated, I guess, in some way, shape, or form over the years, but just speaking with you and reading about your work, um, I think that story tells about, you know, how you live your life with compassion. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm and i happy you told me that story because I think it illuminates who you are as an individual but also as an author. Um, I, I just reading about your books and the subjects of your books. I mean, you're, you're talking about young people dealing with poverty, sexism, lack of education, war, mental health and the struggles that are inherent in all of those things. Um, and they seem very real. They seem incredibly real. So take me to the kind of work that you do, you know, as an author. Um, it could be, you know, your work with Malala or, or your books about self-harm, cut, or sex trafficking sold. How does that idea of compassion uh, lead you, right, to be inspired and also to, to do that years of research to put a book together? You know, I think when you have experienced some kind of trauma in your childhood, you have a special ear out for the suffering of other children. And um, I think you have uh, a real sense of needing to do something about it. Uh, And so, you know, one of the things that the nuns taught us was, well, if you have a talent, you need to use that talent. And so if my talent is writing, then it's incumbent upon me to use that to um, not just to express myself, but to be of service to other people. And so it's very easy for me 
to put myself in the shoes of kids who are under uh, pressures that they shouldn't be under and illuminate that experience for readers who might be having that same experience uh, or for other readers who aren't or adults who want to understand what it's like uh, to be that that kid. Absolutely. And and, and I think also, um, you know, you've talked about your experience uh, growing, growing up in suburban America, but I also very appreciate the way that you've gone, you know, to the ends of the earth, really, to tell the stories that, that aren't normally told. Um, what, what about, you know, and I'm sure this deals, you know, with, with you, you know, as being a young girl at times, tell me about, you know, the, your work that you did with Sold, for instance. Um, how, how did that translate into, into what you were hoping to, to get across, you know, with a very, um, I don't know, just a, a crazy, you know, seemingly crazy, but oftentimes big situation that happens with, you know, young women being sold into the sex trade. Um, what really brought you to, to writing a book like that, um, you know, as, as opposed to, you know, the plot to kill Hitler or something like that? Mm-hmm. Well, who who knows what motivates us uh, creatively, but I sure. knew that as soon as I heard about uh, the issue of child trafficking, um, that somebody needed to tell that story from the girl's point of view, and because uh, they're great books and stories about the issue, but sometimes when we hear those stories and statistics, uh, it sort of hardens our heart. We feel like, oh my gosh, the world is a terrible place, what can I do? But if you hear the story of one individual, it kind of cracks open that protectiveness that we have and and incites us to compassion and hopefully to, to do something. So it was really... Uh, that sense for me of bringing out an individual story that would illuminate a problem and hopefully lead help lead toward a solution. And, and as an author, I'm, I'm sure you know you have to create a space you know with your subjects, but also away from it to talk about it objectively. I guess moving back, you know, referring back to your experience, you know, and the experience that you had of abuse. How how is it? like writing that op-ed, for instance, was this the most public kind of statement that you made about your situation um, as a, as a preteen, um, or, or have you done other things? Like, what, was this, you know, PA grand jury report, like a big uh, kind of linchpin in, in your decision to, to talk? Very much so. I had not been public about this. I mean, I, I tell my friends, and I will sometimes mention it in school visits when I think it's appropriate for the kids to... Uh, hear that about me, partly so that, you know, there might be a kid in the audience who's having a similar experience and knows that he's not alone or she's not alone, and it's it, it, the unspeakable is something we can speak about. But the um, the idea of going public with it was really scary. I was super fired up to write the piece. I, I wrote it almost in one sitting. I sat down at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I did not get up from my desk until about 4. And I kind of feel like if I... I, I must have sensed that if I stopped to take a break, I might lose my nerve. And I sent it to the New York Times, and that evening they called and said they were interested. And I thought, oh, well, they say they're interested. They're not going to really run it. And then I kept kind of telling myself that it wasn't really real until then the fact checker called and the lawyer called, and then there's somebody who wants to put a headline on it. And it was very uh, – they were super professional and very – uh, sympathetic to my situation and helped me edit the piece so that I didn't say anything that 
I would regret or that would bring out um, negative responses in people. So I felt good when we put the piece to bed, and then I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? This is the biggest platform in the world in some ways. Um, and then it went up online, and instantly people started responding, and their responses were so positive and warm and understanding and kind. And I don't, I don't think I have seen a single, oh no, I saw one, uh, but only one response that was negative toward me. Mm-hmm. And of course, the best part was when I went down my driveway to get the newspaper on Sunday morning, and there it was. That was pretty powerful. I'm sure, I'm sure. And and speaking, I I watched you know your CNN appearance that you did with another survivor, um, and you reference you know the great outpouring of support. And just and and this again, Patty, you know, speaking about the work that you've done, your books, for instance, you you talk about the need to tell a story and how important it is to be sincerely heard. Um, you know, like the the book that you you wrote, Purple Heart, for instance. I saw a quote you said. You know, it wasn't a pro-war, it wasn't an anti-war, it was just a story to be told. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just so amazing to be able to have your story be told and heard. And I, I think as individuals that want to be allies and listening, and, you know, and to help, listening is, is the key. I was, I was a little shocked um, on your CNN appearance. You made a really good uh, inference on what Pope Francis said. You know, he, he uh, um, called victims of abuse survivors little ones. And I thought you made a really good point in saying that, you know, that could be a problematic way to say it because, you know, it it distances distances accused survivors and infantilizes them. And I thought it was was surprising to hear the host kind of like try to explain to you what he meant. Right? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, really? She's really going to do that right now. You know, it just seems so um, symbolic of the, okay, let me tell you how it really is. You know, um, talk, talk about the need to just be heard, right, and the importance, you know, what can people do? What can the church do as individuals and people to, to hear stories and to actually have things be done? Well, you know, what you're doing right now is an important piece of it that I, I feel like I'm – I hope I understand what you said, but I feel like you might have used the term active listening. That's what people are doing. I think there was a time, and my parents were caught up in that same denial, where we just couldn't hear those stories. But I think because of the weight of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and, and others – um, it's it's undeniable that there there was a very serious problem, and so we can hear now. Somehow, something has really changed. That uh, it, these stories are hard to hear, and some people have told me that mine, because it wasn't a violent situation, and I didn't really get into you know graphic details, that the story the way I told it, allowed them to enter into it more than they had in the past, where sometimes you read a story and your attention is so snagged by a um, an upsetting detail that you can't read the rest of the story. So there was something about um, this time and the telling of a story in a way that invited people into the experience. And I wasn't blaming anybody and I wasn't you know, um, looking for monetary response or anything like that. I've had my moment with the people in the diocese years ago. That's all I really needed. But um, 
the last piece of it is to get responses like yours, like the ones from my classmates um, who read about it in the paper or on Facebook. That kind of active, open listening where we don't judge, we just wait to hear the person out. And um, unlike the CNN anchor, you don't jump in and try to explain or um, debate with the person. It's just a question of listening. And it's it's harder, I think, than it sounds. Sometimes we're so uncomfortable when somebody tells us something bad or sad or upsetting, we want to comfort them immediately. And sometimes that cuts off um, the full expression. And so I think just being quiet and sitting still and hearing a person out is a really powerful gift that you can give to a survivor. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, well, I hope you know how much, you know, personally, just speaking with you, being able to have this conversation with you means to me. That's my hometown as well, and just, just knowing, I don't know, it just it really rocks you, um, you know, personally, and, and, it, and it made me ask a lot of questions, and I don't, I, I didn't know where to find any kind of answer or any kind of solution because, I study theology, and I wonder how I can continue in a church whose moral fabric is being degraded daily, um, you know, by people who are engrossed by power. And, and truly, you know, testimonies like your own and the kind of person that you are, um, you know, that, that gives someone like myself hope um, and also, you know, reminds me of why I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, at, at studying theology. So I hope you know how much your words, you know, really do mean and I can assure you that anything that I can do, I guess, in my own little way, I find myself indebted to that. So, you know, I have to, yeah, yeah. You know, that means the world to me, your response. You know, who would have thought I'd be talking to a young man from my hometown about this topic <laughs> together? And I really feel most for, not just for victims, but I've heard from a lot of devout and current Catholics who are just torn the way you are. And I think it's going to take us, whether, you know, which side of the debate we're on or which side of the experience we're on, a long time to grapple with this. And we need actually people like you who really do understand and are are committed to theology to get us back to a place where the fundamentals of Christianity come first and we act on those uh, principles with each other. Um, but I don't envy uh, you or people who are inside the church right now. I think it's a very, very painful time. And I, I uh, mostly, I have to say, appreciate hearing from Catholics who are still, still love their church. They're the yeah. ones for whom this is the hardest. No, you're very right. It's a, the church can be a source of great joy, but boy, are there dark places in it. And, you know, when we shine light on that, I mean, it's it's great the PA jury report did it because Nebraska followed up and Missouri and, you know, New Mexico and New York. And mm-hmm. hopefully we'll be all across the country and all across the world and, and really change this in an unprecedented manner. And, and it's just really great to, you know, to speak with you about the way that, you know, you're a part of that. So, um, so, Patty McCormick, I, I really appreciate you joining Theology and Dialogue. And I, uh, the listeners can, uh, you know, reach you at, at patriciamccormick.com. Uh, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, and we'll have all of your uh, your information, you know, put up on our website. Um, and, Patty, again, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Again, many thanks to Dr. Massimo Fagioli of Villanova University, as well as young adult novelist Patricia McCormick for coming on and speaking about this very pressing issue here in the Catholic Church. The Catholic sexual abuse crisis is an issue that, as members of the faithful, we have to look at head-on. And we appreciate Dr. Fagioli and his, his scholastic approach to it. And then, of course, the very true vulnerability and honesty that Patricia showed in talking about her experience. You can follow Dr. Fagioli on Twitter at Massimo Fagioli. That's at M-A-S-S-I-M-O-F-A-G-G-I-O-L-I. That's him on Twitter. He's very active on social media, so you can follow him there. He also wrote an article most recently about... Vagano and Pope Francis in Commonweal, their most recent issue. We'll have a link to that on our website and on the post here. You can follow Patricia McCormick on her website at P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K.com. So we thank you again for joining us on Theology and Dialogue. For Jake Given, I'm Eric Kindler, and we will see you next time.